Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. So welcome. My name is David Buckingham. I'm a researcher on children, young people and media, a kind of wannabe historian in my dreams. And today I'm going to be talking to Hella Strangard Jensen from Aarhus University in Denmark. She is just having a book published called Sesame Street, A Transnational History, it has a beautiful bright yellow and green cover. So it's very um, distinctive, I would say. So obviously, we're going to be talking about Sesame Street, which I guess is a subject that doesn't need too much introduction. I think not so long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, it had its 50-year anniversary. It's the longest-running program, I think, in the history of television. And I think it would be very hard these days to find anybody who had never seen Sesame Street. I think from a, a research, from a historical point of view, it's actually a really interesting story. It's a story obviously about media and about globalization, which is something we'll come to talk about. It's obviously a story about um, education. It's a story about childhood. And in a way, I think what is interesting about Heller's book and, and about the Sesame Street story is that in a way, it's a way of looking at the broader social history of the last 50 years. I guess your focus is mainly on the, the early years, the, the late 60s into the 70s. But it's actually a lens through which we can view bigger things that were, were going on. And Sesame Street always seems to press the the nostalgia button. It's mm. something that, that in, evokes warm feelings. And it, it's a, a lot of the writing that's been done about Sesame Street has the same kind of quality, really. There are, there are, this is not the first history of Sesame Street. There are several other, mm. I guess, more popular, but also some more academic histories. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly the popular ones tend to be, shall we say, celebratory. Mm. Um, so I guess my first question, Hella, is, well, you know, what does your book add to all of this? Or how is the story that you're telling different from those other histories? Well, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for this very kind introduction. And I'm, I'm very happy to talk about, you know, what I think it adds, because as you, you, you're right, there are lots of, of history written about the workshop and also they've themselves uh, produced quite a lot of history about their about their show and about their organization but i think a transnational approach really is quite different because what you have normally is you have very us dominated history but you also have like singular case studies of histories like for instance this history in spain or you know germany something like that but I think a transnational approach where you compare, you know, the, the entry, the transfer, the backlash in different countries 
show you something about like the cause of and effects of like how culture actually gets shaped in that transfer process. And you also get to see things differently. For instance, in a domestic US setting, the, the history really changes perspective. You can, for instance, comparing system history in the US with that in Germany, you can see how quite sort of conservative, actually, the take on education, the take on childhood was in the mm -hmm. US, because you have something to compare with. But also you see how global the uh, children's television workshops sort of desires to get their show off the ground on a global level actually also shape what they did in, in local settings. So, you know, keep wanting to keep their brand intact, how that influenced the way in which they dealt with, for instance, the Scandinavians or the, the, the French. Um, so I think really tracing uh, money, revenues, businesses, and, and, and looking also at sales agents, which is something, you know, I looked at lots and lots of sales agents uh, based in, in Britain and based in Paris that sold the show for the workshop. And those never get mentioned in any, in any of the other histories. So really looking at money was a way to write a completely different history of system history. Yeah, I think that's, that's I mean, you've said two things there. One is that it's, it's a transnational approach. And I, I guess we'll come on to that. But that's something that also in the work you did before um, this. So Hella's first book was about, I guess, debates about kids and media across the Scandinavian context. Mm. So you, you were comparing different national um, Scandinavian contexts, which are actually very different in terms mm -hmm. of ideas about childhood and, and so on. But I think the other thing is so the transnational dimension, but also the, the money, I think, is really interesting because Sesame Street is often talked about as a, as a sort of in a warm and fuzzy way as a, a sort of benevolent gift mm. of the American government to, well, to the poor children of America mm. and to the world, which, to be fair, it, it was initially. I mean, it was it was funded by the government mm -hmm. and by charitable foundations. But very quickly, it became clear that actually it was going to have to get its funding from from other sources. And the fact that it's lasted for 50 years has been really down to the fact that it's been able to firstly generate and sell merchandise, mm. which is something it has in common with just about every other aspect of, of children's media, but also overseas sales, which mm. is the thing that you're looking at. And one of the, the key things that you uncover in the history by by digging about in the archives is I, what you could probably call them you know the machinations and perhaps even the propaganda of the workshop of children's television workshop as it was or as it's now sesame workshop in their efforts to sell the product and, mm -hmm. and some of those machinations are pretty ruthless and pretty underhand even so i wonder if you could could sort of entertain us a little by by telling us a bit about some of what you found these these people like these international agents were mm -hmm. doing to get their their product out to these other countries i certainly can and and i think i think fundamentally actually so the americans would sort of from from the workshop would come at it thinking you know we're doing the world a favor we've sort of you know <laughs> made the 
made the best program in the world. We've done the research that nobody else has. We've, you know, we created the, the Muppets. Like, you know, we've, we've created a great show. Let's share it with the world. Let's, let's help the world get this great show off the ground where they are. But of course, other people don't see it like that. Um, so for instance, you know, one of the things that they would do would, would be to, you know, because they had to create that revenue to get the seasons running in, in the, keep the seasons running in, in the US. But one of the things they look at very quickly was the UK. And they actually calculated at some point that if they could get it, if they could sell it to the BBC in the way and shape and form that they wanted, that would give them 10% of their revenue, you know, that would, uh -huh. you know, yeah. uh, so, so that was the, you know, they really wanted that. They also wanted the, the seal of the approval of the BBC because the BBC is high standing. Uh, they, they expected, you know, other, uh, others to join from, from affluent Europe uh, to buy it if the BBC bought it. Um, and one of the things they did was they tried to use use their connection they had lots of connections and and they made lots of networks in europe with influential people and when it turned out that the bbc actually didn't want to buy it because the bbc had uh, their own program play school which they were also selling to the world and um, so it was a competitor in a way they they used their in with the press in britain and the press alliance with you know the bbc's competitor itv to pressure the BBC and that went on for quite a while and, and it actually led to you know rumors of the BBC banning Sesame Street and, and the head of the children's department in the BBC being sort of accused of being of trying to destroy the Sesame Street's reputation in, in Europe. Um, and that was really quite a nasty deal that I, I tell a lot about in the book. And and then they also tried to instead of like local broadcasters would um, in Europe would fund their production with license fee money. So in in bigger institutions, but Children's Television Workshop tried to say, well, you know, we'll go to ministries of education and try to get revenue, like sell it to them instead, and then sort of outcompete um, local broadcasters in Scandinavia or in Germany with money from ministries of education uh, which local broadcasters couldn't access because they didn't have the same kind of research base they made also they also made research but it was very different so these were some of the ways in which uh the workshop tried to sort of squeeze also local broadcasters out of their own market mm -hmm. so as you've been saying in a way what you find is quite a lot of of resistance mm -hmm. on the part of national broadcasters and and the resistance i think interestingly isn't just about commercial competition although it is about that as you mm -hmm. say the bbc had their own program to sell and so they're they're competitors in a mm -hmm. in a global market but i think also there were lots of other reasons for the resistance and one of the things that is interesting to me that comes out of the cross national approach is that the reasons for that resistance are different in different national settings so there's a concern in in the bbc which is probably i would say more to do with education or with a you know a set of ideas about education but in scandinavia or in germany it's rather different and i think this is actually quite revealing 
of national differences, particularly perhaps in assumptions about education and also ideas about about childhood. So I wonder if you could say a bit more about what do we make of the different reasons for resistance in these different yeah, contexts? I, I think something that's really interesting, I saw I have like three bigger case studies, which are like West Germany, UK and Scandinavia, is that you see if you compare the UK to uh, West Germany and Scandinavia, you see that in, in, in Scandinavia and West Germany, there's like utopian progressivism like in terms of education, but also use of childhood are, are really very strong and come up like very strongly in Scandinavia, but in West Germany too. So this idea that you could use television to be children's spokesperson, really, in Scandinavia, mm -hmm. go out, interview children. What, like, as a child, what would you like to see on television? Would you help us produce it? Um, and that you don't see in the UK. But in the UK, it is, it is also like there is some progressivism, but it's, you know, you see the degree and you also uh, of difference here, really. Um, and I think, interestingly, I, I looked at um, in Italy, there was quite a lot of pushback because they were really sort of pushing back on the merchandise. So they would say to to the Americans when they came to sell Sesame Street, they would say like, no, we want an embargo on merchandise and that should last a year. And the Americans say, well, you know, we can't do that. We live that, you know, <laughs> we, we have to have that revenue. Like we have to have that income stream. If, if you want that, you have to pay way more for the program to cover, you know, our loss on merchandise. So you see that there are different reasons in different countries. And, and I think really the comparison has has really shown that. But I think what's what's, you know, in general in Europe, it's more like, children's television is much more child-centered, but to different degrees. Um, that's also, I think, what was really interesting was to see, so Germany actually buys, um, so West Germany buys, um, Sesame Street makes it into Sesamstraße. But there they use it to, they make their own sort of small sequences and they use them to tell children how to stand up to adult authorities um, but by doing things on their own, asking questions, like asking questions to adults, like, why do you, why are these flowers not good? Why are they weeds? And why are these flowers good? Like, you know, or, or, you know, um, why, why am I pushed aside when I'm going into a shop trying to buy things and then trying to solve that situation themselves? And, and the Americans really, really, really don't like that. So they really push back on, on the social education and system. So I think the other thing to say, though, is that also these ideas, what, what you've been talking about, the different ideas about childhood, the place of the child um, mm -hmm. relative to, to the adult, and also the different ideas about education and, and what learning is and, and the relation between teaching and learning, which was actually, in a way, the big issue for the BBC, I think. Mm -hmm. But these are also ideas that are of their times, mm. right? So, um, I mean, some I did did some some work a while ago looking at the really the beginning of of Sesame Street, and it's very clear that the children's television workshop emerges out of a particular moment in the history of kind of social policy and educational thinking in the US it's the it's the moment of of um Johnson's mm. um, 
you know, um, big society, et cetera, mm. et cetera, you know, and also concern a particular version of the problem of the black child. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, how was America going to, or American policymakers going to address what mm. they saw or how they defined the problem of um, underachievement? And these are all very, very loaded terms, but they reflect a particular kind of conjuncture, mm. you know, a particular uh, a kind of moment in the history of, of educational and, and social policy. But, in, but you can also see that in the other contexts. So in Germany, you know, that idea of the child as resistant to authority, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or in Scandinavia, the idea of the child as kind of speaking up, the child as a sort of proto-citizen mm-hmm. is also ideas of their time yeah 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 they they very much are and i must say like you know systems is really like peak american liberalism as like of the johnson <laughs> era yeah. um absolutely sort of equality of opportunity and the the believe in the in the unbiased educational system where you as an individual if you just do you know, if you learn your ABC and your one, two, three, then, you know, you can do better in that educational system, whether you're a privileged, so system with workshops talks about like underprivileged children and privileged children. Yeah. But there yeah. really is that belief in, in you know, if you, if you just do, you know, if you just do shape up <laughs> as an individual, you can yes. do better. Yes in the long term so there's no address of like you know the root causes so for instance like racism is not addressed it's addressed in the way you know that you could say representation you know there are the the cast is, cast is so much more diverse than you see in any other children's program also in europe which is very very white and very middle class at this point in time but it's not, you know, it's seeing education as something that is is equal for all, that everybody should learn in the same way and could benefit from the exact same kind of, you know, um, way of, of, of preparing for doing better at school. So in that way, you know, it's really, Sesame Street is really the peak liberalism. But as you say, also in Germany, for instance, it's the interpretation of the Second World War as caused yeah. by an authoritarian uh, upbringing in the 30s that is now you know um addressed with this more anti-authoritarian upbringing in germany in the 60s which really has like a cross uh, like it goes beyond like across the political spectrum and yes in scandinavia it's really tied to sort of the the welfare state um in ensuring personal freedom for all its citizens including children and children as the social group yeah so these are very i mean all of these terms like i said they're all loaded terms Mm, mm -hmm. equality or Mm. disadvantage advantage Mm. you know multiculturalism and so all of these terms are are actually defined in ways that are very specific both to their time yep. and place, which is mm-hmm. what I think makes this, like I said, a kind of lens to with which to understand much bigger things that are that are going on. Mm. I think everything you've said kind of really shows us very clearly that Sesame Street is not, despite the claims of 
the children's television workshop is not a culture-free product. No. <laughs> it's actually a very culturally specific product. I, I'm just wondering, you know, almost the final area to, to, to think about is, is what story tells us about media and particularly about the, the dynamics of a global market because i think sesame street is is interesting i mean on one level we're talking about oh years and years ago cats uh, and libes had this great book called the export of meaning mm -hmm. which was all about dallas mm. and how dallas was kind of sent around the world but actually interpreted in very different ways in different mm. places in the world what's interestingly different with sesame street is that it's not actually the same product mm. Um, so what you've got is a process of, of globalization, the export of meaning, but you've also got a process of localization, mm -hmm. where local producers, national broadcasters, you know, partners, perhaps, um, mm -hmm. are, are producing their own content and work weaving it in with the, the content that's produced in, in the US. So I, I, I guess the question from a kind of media scholar's point of view would be, well, you know, what does this tell us? It, it's not just another, yet another example of American cultural imperialism. It's something more kind of complicated than that. It's not just about, you know, American corporations imposing their ideology on the world. It's actually this much more negotiated kind of liberal idea to an extent but i you know i'm wondering what you make of it and perhaps particularly to think about it now because you know we're now in a world where yes media markets are intensively globalized but they are less american dominated the flows of media are much more multi-directional so I, i'm wondering what this study might tell us about you know how we understand the global and the local in 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 media um, more generally yeah i think i think that's where sort of my background as a historian comes in it's you know because these are very big questions but really we need the details and the details of like many case studies to say something i want to go from the empirical to the sort of theoretical level rather than the other way around mm -hmm. and I think with my book I can actually say something about the degree to which you know there was an interest in localizing this because that has been the claim of the workshop you know we're localizing we're not imposing American values but I am but I am saying in the book that this you know the the CTW production model does it's not culturally neutral you know when you start thinking about research production and childhood in this way and what education is you are imposing american values they're just seen as neutral and i think that is you know some of the things about like american imperialism is that that it is not seen as imperial like cultural imperialism yeah. it is seen yeah. as 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 something that is neutral or just the best mm. um but perhaps it's as much not not it's not only at least to do with kind of values or ideology to use and mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um but actually it's about methods of working 
ways yeah. of ways of working yeah. and in a sense, that's that's what's being exported mm-hmm. as much as sort of substantive content in a way and, and for instance when those methods of working include stuff sort of a, a like a, a learning goals bullet point thing and a testing scheme that is a very particular way of thinking about education that you're exporting uh, which is not neutral even though that might be the claim sometimes and i and i think it's i i, I think you with my book see how much room is there really for negotiation? There is some room, but that room often comes out of like, you know, the pressure to bring in a revenue, sure. right? So yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, we'll not buy it if we don't get this. And then there's some pushback. So the negotiation is is very much tied to, to money as well, mm. um, not to culture or yeah. cu- the culture that comes out of that, that is tied to, tight to money and I think in that way you know you're talking about like what that could look like or what does that tell us about today and the global media market of the day but I think really Sesame Street is you know I'm tracing back the globalization of 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 an American you know impact on on children's media and especially this with you know the educational standards and and a and a very specific way of thinking about education yes. that has really made its mark on a global market that you see I think because streaming services today like HBO Disney Netflix comes out of an American tradition I think they very much also carry this some of these cultural markers yeah yes yes there's a big story to tell, I think, mm-hmm. actually here. For me, one of the real interests is that point about education, in a way, which, I mean, talking from the UK now, but we seem to be heading back, in a sense, almost to the ways in which the originators of Sesame Street were thinking mm-hmm. in the mid-1960s. You know, mm-hmm. we have a problem with underachievement. We have a problem of the deficit mm-hmm. of particular sectors of the population and how do we address that and yes increasingly now the idea is we address it with the bullet points we address it with the gobbits of of knowledge kind of thing yeah there's more to say there sure mm-hmm. okay look i'm going to i'm going to finish now and i'm mm-hmm. gonna i'm gonna ask i could, i thought i would ask you this question but then i thought i could ask you this question in quite a nasty way because um one of the things that's very apparent and it, it emerges very clearly from your book and it emerges from everything I've ever, every encounter I've ever had with Sesame Street is that the children's television workshop or as they now uh, call themselves the Sesame Workshop are very protective of their brand um, as well they might be um, mm-hmm. for economic reasons. Um I, I was I was going to ask you, you know, what what would you say is the most important kind of takeaway? You know, if you if you had not half an hour as we've had here, but mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20 seconds on on a on a radio program to kind of sum it up. Um, but actually, also to think, well, you know, would you sum it up? What would you say to? the people from the children's television workshop you know from sesame from from the sesame workshop is there something that you would like to say to them 
um, that would kind of, you know, which you think they could take on board because one could read your book and think, well, actually, this is telling a pretty sceptical story. It's sceptical of many, many of the claims that the producers of the programme uh, are making. Is there anything that you could say to them that might help them to to maybe, you know, think about what they do in a, in a different kind of way? So, I mean, that's a, that's a question, you know, so there's the version of what would you say if you were on, you know, 10, 20 seconds on national radio, for example, to a general audience. And then what would you say to the people from the, the workshop? I guess the point is here that, you know, the claims of being culturally neutral and not wanting to impose your culture is not really a standpoint that's possible to, you know, you're always embedded in a time, in a location, in a political context. And there's always, you know, thinking about, you know, how you make money, revenue, market. So I think, you know, I would I would encourage them to to investigate their story in that way, to think more critically about, you know, the ideas of childhood that they come from and how how that works. You know, it doesn't mean that you couldn't work in another context and you, you know, but, you know, I think being more clear about where you're coming from and the values you have yourself, it would, you know, make you a more equal partner than, you know, trying to have this sort of we come from an objective or neutral or, you know, background. I don't think that actually I, I would encourage them to to study more, you know, their cultural impact on the partners that they work with uh, than than what they do currently. And I think that's also tied in with like, what would I like to be the main takeaway from my book? And that is that the, the morals and the values and the aesthetic expression of, of children's media culture, that, that is shaped by political, social, cultural and economic, you know, uh, factors that are very much, you know, of their time. Um, so, so in that way, you know, the success of a program cannot be seen as, you know, it was just brilliant and everybody loves it. No, it has to be <laughs> sold and branded and marketed uh, for that to happen. Mm. And that is, they would say, I'm sure, the reality of the world that, that we are living in, Sesame <clears throat> Street wouldn't exist without broadly capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess their question would be back to you would be, well, you know, if you want us to think about cultural differences, that sounds like that's going to be that's going to cost us money. Yes, it, <laughs> it, it will. But but so many things do. And I and I just think it, it's so important. I, I, I think you cannot stick your head in the sand with this. But I think the, the problem here is that also much of, you know, the funders, the USAID, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, UNESCO, UNICEF, their partners, they are also thinking very much, they're very much shaped by American liberalism as well. So I don't think they're challenged enough. And I think, you know, if you want to be honest with yourself, you you should, you, you should challenge yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, a, a, a bigger story about America and the, and the rest of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> Okay. All right. I think we've reached reached the end. I think there are there are yes some big lines of inquiry in all of this that I think are, are really interesting. So, 
Thank I, you. I, perhaps I should finish by saying, um, Hella, thank you very much. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to your next book, um, which hopefully so will take, take some of these themes um, onto the next level. So thanks very much indeed. Thank you so much, David. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.